preaching, and uh, I know you're here to worship. I'm excited about the message today, and just so you know, this is the last sermon in our series on Mark 13, which has been a very complicated, yet passages that are so full of truth and encouragement and hope for us, right? Uh, These amazing predictions that Jesus made over 2,000 years ago, 35 years before they came true, all these things that happened are are serve an incredible um, evidence of hope for us in our Savior and in in the reality of who he is as God. Um, And then we have this this, uh, idea of the tribulation and all those things we talked about the last three weeks. And if you haven't heard all the previous three sermons in Mark 13 yet, you need to go back to the YouTube channel or on Facebook videos and catch those because they're, they're all foundational, they're important. Uh, usually you can listen to some of these sermons and you just listen to one and not get the whole series, but this chapter 13, you have to really listen to them all. So make sure you go back and do that. Uh, today is week number 64 in our series on the Gospel of Mark, and I've titled this message, What Hope Looks Like. And the reason I've done that is because, if you remember, we were talking about how at the first, when Jesus started the Olivet Discourse, it was hope on a hillside and it was about prophecy. And we talked about hope in tribulation. We've talked about every, every sermon's title in the last three has had the word hope in it. So we're ending with today, what hope really looks like. So have you ever known true followers of Jesus who had their hope in the wrong things? I mean, they're actually Christians. They know Jesus. He's their Savior. But they've placed hope in things that are not solid. I have to say, during the past election, I was extremely frustrated by some self-proclaimed prophets of God that declared truth from God about the results of the election, even after the election was over. As a result, they misled many Christians, and they distracted them from the true hope that we have, and they they misplaced their hope because of these false prophecies in a political outcome. And now, well, they all, these prophets, they look foolish. They were frauds who distracted some Christians from our main calling. And I got news for you. It ain't winning elections. But false prophecies are just one example of how Christians get distracted by misplaced hope. Christians do this with lots of other things in the world. They do it with church programs. Buildings like the Jews did with the temple. They do it with pastors. They place misplaced hope in their pastors. They place it in money. And they place it in success. You know, we even place at times too much hope in the future on earth. A future world that we hope for where our family, particularly our children, will have a better life than ours. Now, that's a natural desire, and frankly, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not hope. And because of this, we want you to understand that misplaced hope never ends well. You can tell because misplaced hope starts with obsession, unhealthy obsession. And that creates misguided priorities, and then disappointment, and then actually it leads to hopelessness. When hope results in these things, logically, we must conclude 
When hope ends in hopelessness, we must conclude that it was misplaced hope, distracting us from true hope. So the question begins to be asked today, what does real hope look like? I will tell you that real hope always, always will result in selfless, humble service. True hope will cause you to live a life of sacrifice. True hope will cause you to live a life of bravery and relentless endurance. That's what we learned in this last sermon on Mark 13, whether what we have is our hope is worthy or not. So let's look at the passage today. It's verses 32 to 37 of Mark 13. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So this is the spiritual part of this. We can, during this time of prophecy sermons, we've been going with the spiritual application first. What about God? What does he do or say? And why and how does he do or say it? Then we've been looking at the history. Normally they're reversed, but in prophecy it makes sense to reverse them. We're talking about Jesus' final warning on the Mount of Olives, this Olivet Discourse, this prophetic passage. And uh, he's given them a final warning. The first thing, though, I want you to see that he has proven trustworthy. So after three years... Jesus has proven his authority through miracles, teaching, wisdom, even providing food miraculously for thousands of people. Yet the disciples still struggle with much of what Jesus has said. But they don't doubt him or who he is. They know who he is, and they know he's not a liar, and they know that he's speaking truth. He has predicted war with Rome, the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, and all the carnage and tribulation that will come with it. In their eyes, his credibility is certainly unquestioned. So, as Jesus lays out all of this, along with a very specific timeline, that all this would happen before many of them that were listening would die, they're locked in. They're fascinated, wouldn't you be, by every word? Tuned in, focused. He had them, literally, in the palm of his hand, and he takes full advantage now, I want you to see, first thing, I want you to see there's proof of his humanity here, and this is important. He says, the Son of Man, nor angels, nor any human can know the exact day when all this would begin to take place, when all the invasion would take place, the fall of the temple. Remember, he gave them a warning. When everybody else is running toward Jerusalem for safety, you run away because the people in Jerusalem are going to die in this war. He says, no one knows the specific day. Remember, the question they've been asking is, Jesus... When is this all going to happen, this destruction of the temple? It's not a throwaway line. And it's not a contradiction of the promise that their generation would see it happen. We know that historically, matter of fact, historically, no one can argue this. No one, even those who don't believe in Jesus. It's verified by at least 12 non-Christian historical facts and figures of other people writing history that this did happen in 70 A.D., we know that is true. But you might ask, if he's God, how could he not know the exact time and day? Some see this as a problem. I don't. Actually, it's deep, 
beautiful theology. A manifestation of his non-sinful humanity. He says the Son of Man doesn't know the day. It's a statement about Jesus taking on the form of a human, not just in body, but the physiological mind of a man as well. Now, after the resurrection, all that changed. We see that in Acts chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 7 and 8. It says, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, after the resurrection, it was different. He didn't say it's not for me or you to know. He just said it's not for you to know. This is post-resurrection Jesus. He now has the full mind of God. But then I want you to see this warning he gives them about staying ready. Stay awake. Jesus, knowing he has their full attention, gives them a direct charge. Don't fall asleep. Stay awake. And the Greek word for this is kathudo. It means to rest, to become motionless, stagnant. By implication here, to fall asleep. That's the word. It has a lot of, it's not just sleep. It's motionless, rest, sedimentary, staying in one place. He says, don't do that. Don't fall asleep. Don't get motionless. He uses this powerful illustration of a master putting in, in charge his whole staff as he gets ready to leave while he's gone on a journey. And he gives each staff member a specific job. But there's one that is specifically appointed as the doorkeeper. And this, in actuality, in first century Israel, was the most crucial role in the absence of the master of the house. The doorkeeper is responsible not only for traffic in and out, who comes in the gate, who comes out the gate, in the door, out the door, but the doorkeeper was also in charge of all business of the estate while the master is gone, making sure nobody rips off the estate. People don't try to say and sell things that weren't supposed to be sold or take things they say they bought when they didn't. He is the security system, the security force. This is how Jesus is describing this crucial calling that he will be giving his church in just about 40 days at his ascension, the Great Commission. Can you imagine the embarrassment if the master returned and the doorkeeper was sleeping or shirking his responsibilities? Not only would the doorkeeper miss the master's return and not be ready for it, but he puts everyone else in the house in jeopardy from people creeping in. Jesus wants them to remain vigilant. He wants them to live as people who believe what he is telling them is true. This is the mindset he wants his disciples to have as they live out in the hope of the fulfillment of these prophecies. Be mindful of the responsibility you will have for my kingdom. You are the doorkeepers. Be awake. Lives depend on it. So that's the spiritual part of this passage. Let's talk about the historical. I want to talk about this legacy of hope. This, this historical section is probably one of, the, one of my most favorite historical sections to have been written in my series on the Gospel of Mark. As I said earlier, we learn historically the disciples did heed Jesus' direction very specifically Jesus gave them instruction, and we see that they were faithful with it at the very beginning of the church. Nothing was more important than the disciples teaching others in the first century what Jesus had taught them here about the gospel and the coming tribulation with Rome. And they were immediately obedient in declaring Jesus as a trustworthy Messiah, proclaiming the gospel of the cross, 
but they were also diligent in spreading the warning about the coming invasion of Rome, the fall of Jerusalem, and the temple. And we see examples of this all throughout the book of Acts, which is basically a historical book written to chronicle the first century church. Nothing distracted the disciples from their job as faithful, wide-awake doorkeepers. They weren't deterred by petty politics. They weren't deterred by money. They weren't distracted by family squabbles or family pressure. Nothing was more important than staying awake. Early on, even if you remember correctly, there were things that would come up in the early church. There was this little conflict about widows. The Gentile widows weren't being taken care of, as well as the the Jewish widows. And the disciples set up leadership and administrative structures. I know Jen Gillespie loves to hear that. They set up leadership and administrative structures so that they would be not having to be worried about the logistics of the day-to-day church business so that they could focus, what does the scripture say, on preaching and teaching the message of Jesus Christ. Even when they were threatened with death, that couldn't deter our early church fathers from spreading the warnings to watch and to stay ready. They showed incredible courage as we see spelled out in the book of Acts over the next three years, preaching in teaching in every situation. This was their immediate obedience. But that's not the amazing part of the historical impact of this dramatic teaching on the Mount of Olives. There's more. This is what I found to be most amazing was their endurance. Listen carefully to this. Don't get distracted. Throughout the New Testament, there are many references to stay awake. Right? You probably read them. All of them, you know what they are? Their references, listen carefully, to this prophecy on the mount. Every time you see stay awake in the, one of the letters of the epistles or in the book of Acts, it was always referring back to the Mount of Olives. It's about this prophecy and its specific warnings. Remember, the war and tribulation did not occur until 33 years after the Mount of Olives. They didn't. Guess, this is amazing. This early church did not moderate their message or falter at all for more than three decades waiting for this prophecy to come true. Here's an example. Peter, who, by the way, Mark wrote the gospel of Mark based upon Peter's account. I don't know if you remember that from our very first introduction. Peter described the mindset. He wrote this, Peter did, in his uh, letter, 1 Peter, two years before it unfolded. In other words, about 30 years after he had heard it the first time. 30 years after, here's what he writes. See if you can see how similar it sounds to what Jesus said. Are you ready? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Mount of Olives? Be mindful, be watchful. What we know is that this sober preaching of the gospel and the vigilance characterized by the church lasted for three decades. No no relenting, no lull, no four or five-year period where the church sort of lost its focus and then had to deal with, and then, okay, now revival, now we come back. Think about that. In fact, get this. Here's what's really amazing. These disciples and their disciples trained thousands of other people to preach it flawlessly. 
accurately, perfectly. We already learned how many secular historians affirmed how the church was spared that carnage, right, in Jerusalem from that tribulation, following the command from Jesus to flee Jerusalem while others ran toward it, escaping certain death. Consider this. Are you ready? It's going to blow you away. Most of those who heeded the call weren't even born when Jesus taught this. The average lifespan in the first century was about 30 to 35 years. Think about that for a minute. He tells 12, and what we learn from Josephus, tens of thousands, maybe 100,000, maybe more, fled Jerusalem when 1.1 million Jews ran to Jerusalem and were slaughtered. And they were never, they were not first-hand hearers of this message. Following the command to flee, and they were taught the gospel, and this prophecy probably, get this, even more amazing, not by the disciples. Many of them had died by the time this took place. John was still alive. This is second, third, and fourth hand witnesses of Jesus' sermon on the Mount of Olives. Christians, just like you and I, with no direct tie to Jesus, no personal interaction with him, soberly wait for three decades for this prophecy to be fulfilled, watching for the signs, remaining diligent, ready, and all along preaching. Their diligence preserved at least two generations of believers, and then right after that, we know from church history, the movement just exploded. Question, do you think the Christians in the first century were mocked with this preaching about a pending doom for 30 years? Matter of fact, in the parallel passage in Matthew, Matthew says it looked just like it would in the days of Noah when they mocked Noah. Isn't it fascinating how Scripture is all tied together? Of course the first century church was mocked for saying, for 30 years it's going to happen, and it didn't, it's going to happen, and it didn't, year after year, nothing. These people, these Christians are foolish. And then when the invasion came, look at these stupid Christians. They're running from the stronghold. They're running from Jerusalem that has the protective walls and the army. They're running away. They're going to get slaughtered. Of course they were mocked, just like they mocked Noah. You know what else is amazing about this is this message was sealed in their hearts. It's stunning how seriously they took these warnings of Jesus, right? Especially since he wasn't around anymore to remind them personally. Think about it. These second, third, fourth-hand Christians gave up their entire life plan for what most would consider sex, success, you know, pursuing success in the world, for a movement that was waiting upon a prophecy that people mocked. And why? Well, later... Jesus promised a Holy Spirit, a comforter which would come and seal their hearts and their faith. In John chapter 14, 25 and 26, these things have I spoken to you while I am still with you, right? But the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Isn't that beautiful? So look, I know I'm teaching you a lot, and I keep teaching you while I'm with you, but soon I'll be gone. But don't worry, God's going to send the Holy Spirit, and he's going to make sure you remember all of it. That's another miracle. They didn't forget a jot or tittle for 30 years. 
The church remained relentless, focused. Three decades, their message was pure. Listen carefully. Their message was unfiltered. It was culturally unaltered. They didn't try to change it to get more people in. Think about it. Tens of thousands who never met Jesus, or frankly, many of them never even met a disciple of Jesus, in a primitive society with no podcasts, no internet. Jesus' sermons weren't on the Messiah YouTube channel. It wasn't written down in books. It was all passed on verbally. Three decades of hoping in every word, never weary, never weary, never wavering, never distracted, relentless. Don't let that historical miracle escape you. So let's go to the personal application. What about us? What in the world are we supposed to do with Mark 13? I've entitled this section Modern Hope. So this was my preview from this week on social media. True hope doesn't create obsession about the future. It inspires relentless action and sacrifice in the present. That's what we saw in the first century church. There is so much that we can learn today from how the first century lived out the Mark 13 hope in Jesus. So let's talk about hope's focus. The purpose for this sermon on the Mount of Olives wasn't to tell the disciples to predict a date. Many Christians are obsessed with that today, pouring through the book of Daniel and Revelation and trying to predict the year and the month and all those things thinking those types of predictions, if we give somebody a deadline, it will motivate them and stir them to action and trust Jesus. The problem is that kind of preaching was not what Jesus laid out in Mark 13, and it doesn't, frankly, produce real hope. I think the example of what the first century church did is what produces real hope. See, real hope keeps us focused on sober anticipation, don't get me wrong, But that sober anticipation isn't manifested by obsession with the future. It produces active obedience to the Great Commission now. Our focus isn't the obsession with the culmination of the kingdom at the end of the age of the Gentiles that we talked about last week. True hope makes us focus on what we can do to expand the kingdom today a focus on his promise that he gave the disciples. Listen, I've been telling you while I'm here, but when I'm gone, who's coming? The Holy Spirit. It's a focus on the promise that he is with us now through the Spirit till the end of the age with authority over spiritual powers. Real hope has a focus and it knows that the enemy will desire to infiltrate us and distract us and give us different types of hope and take us from our primary role as the doorkeepers. For us, I think real hope will make us look just like the first century church who were focused for over 30 years with one main priority. And what is that priority? Look what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Hmm. So I didn't make it up. (laughs) For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. 
Amen to that. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, if Jesus is already your Lord this morning, I want you to take his admonition in today's passage seriously. Don't live in spiritual slumber. And you can tell if you are because you become obsessed with the things of this world and the impact the things of this world can have on your life, giving you comfort or taking it away, making you tired. There is another world to come. True hope protects us from being consumed with earthly priorities that can be disorienting and that can also, frankly, corrupt the message of Jesus, can they not? Yes, it is true, church, we do have earthly responsibilities. I'm not telling you to shirk those. We do have them. But children of God don't need to be consumed by the priorities of this world. And there are many of you sitting right here this morning that have many of those earthly priorities tugging at you as we speak. They're distracting your heart and your mind. It could be politics. It could be culture. It could be personal success. I don't know, but each one has a tug. But we don't live for those things. Those things corrupt your values. They corrupt your priorities. We have to live with them, but we don't have to be obsessed with them. Our priority, just like the first century Christians, is this, expansion. The spread of the kingdom of heaven as far as possible while we are here. That is our primary focus and our priority. And with that, I believe hope produces diligence, just like it did for the first century church. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. He's talking about that tribulation prediction by Jesus. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. It's right back to Mark 13. This passage in Thessalonians is a direct callback to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of Olives. It's not about a pre-tribulation return of Jesus. It's about the one to come. This was written a few years before the fall. And like a thief doesn't mean that Jesus is sneaky. It's not about Jesus being sneaky. It's a warning to first century people to be prepared, to be diligent. Our kingdom diligence is one more crucial piece of evidence of whether or not we have our hope in the real thing. If you don't have kingdom diligence, I got news for you. Your hope's in the wrong place. I can guarantee it. Sadly, many Christians aren't diligent. Many are lazy, sleeping doorkeepers. And why? Because their hope has been compromised. 21st century Christians need to follow the example of diligence of our beautiful first century brothers and sisters, the example they left for us. Faithful doorkeepers with a relentless uncompromising message about the kingdom of heaven to as many people as they could possibly get it to. And their message, to be specific, 
contain two ingredients. The gospel of Jesus and be ready to leave the false hope Jerusalem offers you. The gospel of Jesus on the cross and abandon the false hope of Jerusalem. It won't protect you in the tribulation. Those are the two main parts of their message. 2,000 years later, what's our message? It's very similar. Matter of fact, it's the same. It's the gospel of Jesus and be ready to leave the hope this world offers you. Isn't that beautiful? If you truly have that hope, i got to tell you, I don't see how, if you truly have your hope in the right place, in this Jesus, this amazing Jesus that stuns the world in Mark 13, if your hope is truly in the right place, I don't know how you would stop telling people about what's happening next. <laughs> and if not, if you're really not interested in telling people about what's next, these words of Jesus in Mark 13 don't impact your heart either way. I don't think you really have true hope. You are, in fact, a sleeping doorkeeper. Heavenly Father, this study of Mark 13 has been fascinating. You've taught me a lot. I pray that people have learned a lot. There's been a lot of details. Sometimes it's been like a fire hose of information. But Lord, we're so thankful that everything you said came true. And no one can deny it historically. And because of that, we know that we can place our hope in you. You're trustworthy. You're reliable. And so today, I pray that you would keep us awake, keep us sober, keep us vigilant, spreading the gospel of Jesus and telling people you don't have to run to the world for hope anymore. Our hope can be in the kingdom of heaven. Father, we confess to you that far too often, not just as individuals, but even as a church right here at Grace Life, far too often we allow our priorities and our hope to be distracted. It's in those moments when our frail humanity begins to hope in things that aren't really hopeful. Lord, remind us of those moments and send that comforter that you promised that Jesus said would come. Send him to remind us of everything that you said so that our hope can remain pure. Because we know diligent kingdom work is what true hope really looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm both happy and sad that Mark 13 is over. <laughs> but I want to give you an update. The next several weeks, it's really going to get intense. We're talking about the Last Supper, the crucifixion. And I don't know, it's possible, but I was trying to do some calculating this morning. I think that our, preacher, our, our preaching on the resurrection might coincide with Easter, believe it or not which would be really cool, wouldn't it? Now i got to make it happen, don't I? <laughs> but uh, I pray that this, was, this chapter has been an encouragement to you. Uh, if you have any questions about it, you can email me at meganmooney at hotmail.com, and I will answer them all. 
No, just email me and let me know. We can walk through it. But uh, I know there's been a lot there. We love you guys. I hope you have a good week. If you need anything from us, let us know. We've got your back. Have a great week. Go Bucks.